This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Blue Cliff Record, Case 80. A monk asked Joshu, does a newborn infant also have six consciousnesses? Joshu said, a ball tossed on rushing water. The monk went on to ask Toshi, what is the meaning of a ball tossed on rushing water. Toshi said, moment to moment, non-stop flow. Verse, inactivation of the sixth consciousness presents a question. The adepts both discern where it comes from. A ball tossed on boundless rushing water doesn't stay where it lands. Who can watch? So here we have a monk asking about the nature of consciousness, about the nature of mind, and by implication asking about the difference between his mind and Joshu's mind. And is using the metaphor of a newborn baby to try to grasp what kind of difference there could or should be. What kind of transformation is supposed to happen in his mind. And the suggestion, of course, is that in some way, the newborn infant's mind is free of all the contaminating concepts that come later in life and that add up to a self, add up to delusion, add up to suffering. You probably know in the traditional Buddhist psychology, the first five consciousnesses correspond to the senses. The sixth is supposed to be the one that organizes them. The seventh is the one, if I have this right, that creates a sense of self having those experiences. An eighth is a storehouse consciousness, which is a kind of collective unconscious. And the ninth is a consciousness of pure emptiness, an enlightened consciousness. In a way, it's all these different sort of metaphysical attempts to describe the nature of mind and what is it that we imagine 
is the difference between ordinary mind and enlightened mind. So when the monk evokes the picture of the newborn, I suppose he's, in a, he's imagining a kind of um, Wordsworthian child, an infant, uh, one that uh, confronts the world in a sense of immediacy and joy and wonder. Doesn't seem to have in mind the the child who's just dropped his ice cream cone and is crying unconsolably. It's not that kind of child that we're talking about. Huh? And Joshu, in his own way, attempts to disabuse him of this kind of idealized picture of the pristine immediacy of newborn consciousness as a ball tossed on rushing water. Something that is not calm and serene and placid. It's not this kind of uh, mirror lake that's calm and still in which everything is uh, perfectly reflected but it's turbulent, rushing water, a ball tossed on it, bouncing here and there. And if that wasn't clear enough for him, he goes, ask another teacher, Toshi, what does that mean, a ball tossed on rushing water? Moment to moment, non-stop flow. Again, the non-stop flow is the flow of thought or consciousness and Again, he's trying to disabuse the monk of a picture of the enlightened mind as one in which all thoughts come to a stop, in which things become silent and stable and placid, clear, any of those words you might want to use. And it's an important case because it, you know, it illuminates what is a centuries-old curative fantasy of what we think our meditation should be like and how we should become. Now, it might actually be instructive to use this metaphor of the infant, uh, but not the way the monk wants to, as um, having this pure original mind unsullied uh, by cognition or uh, words and concepts, all these kinds of contaminations of adulthood, but to think of the infant as the uh, model of interdependency, of embeddedness. 
And then we think of the uh, Winnicott's baby, where he says, there's no such thing as a baby. And what he meant is that you can't begin to describe a baby without describing its mother, without describing its context, milieu, which is a relational one. Anything you want to say about the development or temperament of the baby is going to be co-determined by the kind of mother the baby has and her temperament and her skills. And it also follows that what kind of mother she is or how she feels about herself as a mother is going to be dependent on how the baby responds and develops and thrives or not in response to her love and attention or lack of it. The two are completely entangled from the very beginning. And if we think of the, the child who's dropped his ice cream cone and is having a tantrum and crying unconsolably, what we see there is the way in which the child has not exactly mastered or gotten a grip on uh, impermanence and doesn't have the capacity to regulate his own reactivity and his emotionality, swept away by the immediacy of his loss. Now, sometimes people act as if just being totally in the moment with that loss or disappointment, oh, that's, that's very Zen. But we prefer not to um, think of a Zen teacher as somebody who's going to uh, throw a tantrum if they don't get their way or they drop their ice cream cone. So there's something else that ought to be going on other than just the completely have your reaction and your feeling. And there what we see is that the child is defined by its secure attachment or its lack of a secure attachment. Is there a mother who can engage in what's called marked mirroring? where she, you know, responds to say, oh no, you dropped your ice cream cone. That's so terrible. In a way that she responds showing that she gets the child's distress, but by modulating her own response to it, creates a kind of container for the child's distress. It models and connects the child to her own uh, affect, capacities for affect regulation. And so the child is hooked into something, a set of capacities, a way of viewing things that is larger than itself. Whether you call that a kind of self-object connection or describe it as the third uh, what we're seeing is a way in 
who and what the child is is inseparable from its context and whether that context promotes cohesion and affect regulation or, or breakdown and fragmentation. See, this koan also puts me in mind of another where it said a nun comes upon a group of monks arguing about the flag flapping in the wind. And one set of monks are saying, it's the flag that's moving. Another set is saying, the wind is moving. And the nun comes to them and says, it's the mind moving, at which point they're all enlightened. Used to be much more, used to be a lot easier to get enlightened, I think, in the old days. <laughs> So what does she mean uh, by it's the mind moving? See, it's not uh, adequate to say uh, it's all their individual uh, minds getting riled up and angry and argumentative and that their mind is moving like their tongue is flapping in the, the argument. She's pointing to something bigger. And in part, what we're, that kind of koan is talking about is also about context and interconnection and interdependency. The monk's argument involves picturing a flag and wind objects and cause and effect as all separate objects that are interacting. And you could say they're trying to say what is most, what's primary, what sets the sequence in motion. But the nun's perspective is that the flag and the wind and the monks themselves and their reactions and their arguments are all part of one bigger picture. There's something she calls mind that's moving. And that can get, give rise in its own right to uh, a lot of confusion and uh, a lot of woo-woo. If you think of uh, mind there as capital M mind or big mind, as if it is like our mind, but writ large, as if it is cosmic consciousness, whatever that's supposed to mean, or something like that. I think it's very useful in stories like this to try substituting the word life for, for mind. It's life moving life happening, right? The wind is part of it, the flag is part of it, you're part of it. It's all one thing happening. And we, we can, if we want, try to break that down into 
separate objects interacting. But from another perspective, objects really aren't ever separate from one another. You can only talk about objects in relation. And the relations and the interconnections are what define them. Just like there's no such thing as the baby or the mother apart from each other. The flag and the wind and you and your mind really are indefinable except as you interact with each other. This is a picture of what gets called no separation. And again, that can, you know, get talked about in a kind of woo-woo kind of way as if, you know, what we're aiming at is to dissolve all boundaries and have no distinction between self and other. And there may be moments when we have that as a kind of immediate experience. But mostly it's, a, it's an awareness of interdependence, which like impermanence is not a special state that we have to achieve. It's the way everything already is. When we see it, it's not something that's a special experience within our mind, within our consciousness. It's a description of how the world already is. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we see the ducks, sometimes we see the rabbit, but they're always both there. Nowadays, people are still asking questions about the nature of mind and consciousness and what it is and where it is. And there's a whole school of thought that wants to identify mind with consciousness and consciousness with the brain. And again, there's a way in which brains are a necessary but not sufficient aspect of what it is to be conscious and what it is to have a mind, but what that kind of um, description misses out on is the, the reality of there is no such thing as a baby. And we might say there's no such thing as a brain, right? There are no brains without bodies, no bodies uh, except as living organisms as part of a world, as part of a relational uh, consciousness. There's nothing inside that hasn't come from the outside. Uh, there's no subjectivity prior to intersubjectivity. And we're not really on the inside looking out, right? Receiving input from the world. We're inseparable from the world. Right? And if you like, you can say we're part of big mind or we're part of life. But it's this perspective 
that says there's just this one thing happening. So as I asked in the opening remarks, what is the mind that's giving rise to these thoughts? And where is it? Just look around. 